Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, our government has launched the ambitious goal of making Newfoundland and Labrador one of the healthiest provinces in Canada by 2031. Recently, they launched a budget that looks at new ways to help allocate the significant investment we make each year in healthcare. The goal is to improve access to services and promote healthier communities through various initiatives, including some that are new to the budget. Today, we'll talk with Premier Andrew Fury about the major wellness-related initiatives in the budget to kick off the show and then be joined by Health Minister Dr. John Hagee, who'll take us through an in-depth explanation of the major health budget initiatives. These include tax credits for physical activity, a tax on sugary beverages, investments in virtual health, specific initiatives around children and seniors, and a strong focus on mental health. There's lots to cover, so let's get to it. Hi, Premier Fury. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. I should say welcome back to the show. You've been on now a couple of times, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule because today we're talking about a new initiative that you've launched at the government, and it has to do with health and the budget. Can you explain some of the changes that you guys have made with the budget when it comes to promoting healthy living? Sure. So, I mean, we recognize as a government, of course, that health is a top priority for all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, but we equally recognize that what we've been doing to date has not been effective. We continue to try the same avenues, using the same vehicles, and we continue to get poor results. Right now, we spend the most per capita uh, out of any province on healthcare, and we have the uh, worst health outcomes. We have the highest burden of chronic disease. We have the lowest life expectancy, and we need to change. And so this budget had that in mind when we uh, considered incentives uh, to uh, allow people to get more healthy, such as the physical activity tax credit uh, that will allow uh, families to avail of a $2,000 tax credit with respect to physical activity to, to help promote and incentivize people to become more healthy. Because we know, especially in our younger years, if we adapt a healthy lifestyle, then that pays dividends uh, long-term uh, as we age. So uh, that's, an, that's an incentive. There's also a bit of a, uh, a nudge factor with uh, a sugar tax in that uh, we want people to uh, consider when they're buying drinks, if they should uh, pick the high caloric non-nutritional drink or uh, perhaps a more healthy option. Uh, so we're placing a tax on uh, sugary drinks. Uh, we know that the, some of those uh, calories are, are not really nutritional and those drinks are quite high in caloric intake and, and consequently contribute to things like diabetes and obesity, all things that we're trying to change in order to become a more healthy province. And really, the bricks and mortar investment in hospitals don't really change the significant health outcomes more than than these practical individual choices, social determinants of health, if you will. And if we can help people make those uh, right choices, then I think we're doing our job as government. That's right. And some of these have been used in other parts of the world. How did you come to decide on what strategies to employ? Sort of what empirical evidence is out there that sort of shows that these are the right things for us to be doing? Yeah, there's evidence from other jurisdictions around the world when it comes to the sugary uh, tax drinks uh, that uh, suggest that, again, it's not a tremendous revenue generator, but it helps people modify their behaviors. And so even though we may not generate a significant line item of revenue with respect to the tax itself, if we are able to nudge people in the right direction to change the behavior, then that will pay dividends long-term. And there is evidence uh, throughout uh, the world, uh, 
that uh, this has been successful. Um, and granted, we're not a country, and most data uh, available is uh, is yeah. countrywide with respect to this. So we're extrapolating that to a provincial economy and a provincial health system. But we think it's certainly a good tool in the toolbox to allow people to get healthy. And of course, we've seen here in, in Canada before the benefit of the physical activity tax credit mm-hmm. um, and uh, on a national stage. And we think that it not only uh, can help families get more healthy, but it eliminates the financial burden in doing so. So, I mean, I've got three children in sports activities. It gets expensive pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make sure that financial barriers aren't high so that people, regardless of their financial status, uh, can avail of becoming healthy uh, mm-hmm. and allowing their children and their family to become more healthier. And I think uh, the tax credit like this is a first step. Exactly. And I think that health literacy is one thing that's massively important, especially when you talk about things like the social determinants of health. Why is it that if, at a young age that if we're active and we're healthy and we learn these behaviors, how will they translate? Because I'm sure this isn't, we expect to see a change in health status tomorrow. How does this sort of impact our long-term perspective as a province? Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, this is this is planting a seed uh, for a tree in 30 years. But as we all know, the best time to plant that seed is today. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, this is one of economics where the fruit is going to be born over a long period of time. We also know that, you know, as human beings, we set our behaviors early in life. And uh, if we're, and they're hard to change, frankly, at, after a certain period of time. So if we're able to uh, focus uh, people's attentions uh, around becoming more healthy, especially uh, in the adolescence and the youth of the province, then that will pay dividends uh, down the road. So it's very difficult, uh, as you know, Mike, uh, when you're um, middle age or above to modify behaviors. Uh, it's also difficult to overcome the burden of disease that is already uh, set in. Um, so especially like if you, not to pick on diabetes, but if you think about diabetes, it's, it's difficult to change um, outcomes of a diabetic uh, who develops diabetes uh, in their late 60s, for example, and largely based on behaviors of the past. So what we want to do is, is change, the be- change the behaviors of the past today so that the the current 20-year-old doesn't face that burden of diabetes when they're 65. Exactly. And like you said, we have some of the highest rates of some of these preventable or lifestyle-related diseases in the country. Well, somebody who helps promote health here, I love seeing what you guys are doing. Thank you for making health a priority in the budget. And thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, Mike. That was Premier Andrew Fury walking us through some of the wellness-related initiatives in the budget and why he and his government felt it is important to make wellness a priority. When we come back, we're joined by Minister of Health, Dr. John Hagee, who will take us step-by-step through the major health initiatives in the budget and what it means for us here in the province. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking with Health Minister, Dr. John Hagee, who's sharing the new health initiatives in the provincial budget. Let's get back to the interview and learn more. Hi, Minister Hagee. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike. It's good to see you again. We had some exciting news recently. The new budget has come out and there were some very, very interesting aspects when it comes to prevention and health. You know, our health budget is a really big part of our overall budget. Why is that? I think it's crept up over the years from a provincial point of view. 
part of that is due to the fact I think the feds over the years have, have put in less and less of the healthcare dollars. Uh, one stage we used to get 50 cent dollars and now we get 17 or 16 cent dollars from the feds. The population's got older and uh, the medical profession has got cleverer at keeping people who were sick going better. And so that's all contributed to, to drive costs upwards as well. So it, it's just a, a slow rise in those. And uh, the cost of labor has gone up as well. It's a, a highly labor intensive uh, field uh, and lots of healthcare workers with lots of qualifications and a global market. So uh, we have to do our best to try and be competitive on that market. That's right. That's right. And like you said, there's many health issues that face people and there's 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 ones that are inherent to all people. But what are some of the major health issues that we're facing here in the province? Well, I think the most obvious is that we are an aging population. We have more old folk per capita, as it were, than than most jurisdictions. And the rest of us are getting older as well. So that brings with it the challenges of aging. We have significant chronic diseases in the province, and we're not a very healthy province. We have significant levels of obesity. We have significant levels of alcohol use and smoking. Uh, and those all combine really to become a perfect storm as you get a bit older. Um, <clears throat> you don't age well under those circumstances, and that drives the cost we just talked about too. Yeah, right. You hit the nail on the head. I think that we look at some of these preventable issues. They're happening to people at a younger age. And as they get older, they're going to experience more serious repercussions from them that maybe some of our older population didn't experience growing up. Are you guys seeing that in your trending? Yeah. I mean, if you look, unfortunately, we're seeing uh, younger people who are overweight. We still see uh, significant smoking rates, particularly in younger women. And those rates are going up rather than staying still, despite our successes in other areas with young men and older men in terms of, of giving up smoking. We try to look at things a little bit differently this time. Uh, the challenge we've got is prevention is really good way to spend your dollars. But when your dollars are tight, you've still got to spend on treatment as well. So it, it really is a, a, a bit of a, a Solomon's quiz sometimes trying to figure out which way to go. That's right. Well, some of the ways that you guys are looking at prevention is through some of the new initiatives in the budget. So I'd like to go through some of those. What I was really excited about seeing um, was the fiscal activity tax credit. You know, that could benefit both the individual, but also the industry as a whole, which was, you know, where I started out. Tell me about that credit and how people can avail of it. Well, that was the idea behind it. We thought it was a win for both individuals and families. It gets people into good habits. Uh, encourages them to stay there. Uh, but also we do have a fitness, a recreational sport industry in the province, which uh, would benefit from some economic stimulus. So essentially any, uh, you know, vigorous sport, soccer, rugby, uh, you know, hockey, those kind of traditional sports obviously counts, but also things like golfing and running, anything that will get your pulse going, mm -hmm. uh, uh, will will essentially qualify. And uh, it's done on a family basis. And so one person would claim on behalf of the household. Right. And will there be some guidelines coming out on how people can claim these refunds during tax season? Yes. I mean, basically what you would need is you would need a, a proper receipt from a, a company with a name, the amount that you paid over the course of the year uh, and the nature of the activity. And then you would keep that, but you would be able to submit it on your income tax form each year. And it, it's the lesser of what you spent or $2,000. Uh, and uh, it's reimbursed at the lowest tax rate. So it, it'll catch all taxpayers in that bracket. Uh, so it's a start. 
and it will be uh, uh, available for this uh, financial year, my understanding. And so from then, we'll see how it goes. We'd look to see what the uptake is like and see if we can maybe build on it in the future. Well, that's excellent. And there's a couple of things in there on the physical activity side that are also looking to the future. We had a recent episode on the Canada Games coming in 2025. It looks like there's a significant expenditure for the athlete development and probably coaches development, as well as some money for the city of St. John's. How does supporting the Canada Games and these ongoing sporting programs benefit our population? Well, it's kind of a halo effect. I mean, you see with the Olympics, maybe not this year because it's it's fraught with all sorts of unusual situations. But it generates interest, and particularly, uh, I think Team Canada is pretty good at trying to trying to build that excitement around, you know, be it figure skating or swimming or whatever the sport is. And, and young people get caught up in this. They see role models, they see themselves in the athletes that compete, and it, you know they get a me too feeling about it. So that then drives people to do stuff. Now the Canada Games is a little closer to home, and there are infrastructure funds that can be used to build, if you like, legacy uh, um, uh, facilities, uh, you know, like the Aquarina, those kind of places or running tracks that will then be there for years afterwards for, for youth and, and citizens here to enjoy alike. And so, again, it, it has that lingering tale of, of positive knock-on effects. Right. And talk about economic boost. They're estimating 20,000 people will be coming to town and 2,000 athletes and significant revenue for the tourist industry and, and other sort of spin-offs that aren't related directly to athletics. No, and I mean, I think given the, the nature of the pandemic and travel, uh, travel has really taken a bit of a knock as we're coming out with our, our vaccine program. I mean, we just passed 50% with uh, two doses. So we're, we're ahead of where we thought we'd be. And I think we'll continue to gain momentum there. Uh, so that's protection for each and all of us. But I think the bigger picture, medium term, is to try and uh, get people traveling again. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the tourism industry here, particularly on the Avalon, will tell you that staycations are great, but they're their bread and butter for a lot of them was people from other parts of Canada uh, and for some even Pacific international travel. So things like the Canada Games obviously brings teams and support people and physios and this kind of thing into the province and they require accommodation. They want services. They may even get a bit of time off to, you know, to go down George Street or do the pedestrian mall or whatever, uh, depending on the time of year. So I think you're right. I mean, the, the, those economic effects, I think people see very clearly. But the, the construction, the renovation and that long tail of facilities you, you can use for a generation or two afterwards shouldn't be underestimated. That's right. I think a lot of people have shot hoops in the field house or swam in the aqua arena that might not have made the Canada Games. I'm one of those people. <laughs> Excellent. So we keep on going through some of these initiatives here. Uh, we see that there's tax credits for healthy activities, but you guys have added a new 20 cent sugar tax on sweetened beverages because we know that sugar isn't necessarily the best thing for us. Why was that an important addition to the budget and what was the rationale for this? Well, a significant number of people in this province are overweight. A significant number of people are developing maturity onset diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And this is all connected to, to sugar. Uh, uh, it's not the sugars your granny would have got from berries in the field. It's not polysaccharides. It's, it's glucose or dextrose. So this was a, a health initiative we felt that would deal with some of those elements. Uh, it's um, 
uh, a new area for North America, for Canada anyway. Uh, it, it's been tried in other jurisdictions. So we need a little bit of lead time to get the, the bits and pieces behind it worked out. Uh, it won't be a, a point of sale tax. It will be applied to the, the stuff, as I understand it, at the kind of wholesale level, mm -hmm. uh, in the same way a lot of other taxes are collected provincially. And I think there is a growing body of evidence from other jurisdictions that this reduces the consumption. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, there's evidence from the World Health Organization, because some people have said, well, you know, these are cheap drinks. If you're shy of cash, then you'll go and get a can of something fizzy and sugary because that's all you can afford. But interestingly enough, there's evidence from the World Health Organization that people who actually are challenged with resources and income actually make more of an effort to avoid sugary drinks with the tax than people who may have a little bit more money to spend. So the, the, the paradox that you'd think about there doesn't seem to apply. Uh, and we felt uh, it was really important for us because diabetes, particularly type two diabetes is an issue here. There's no doubt about it. Well, that's right. And, you know, and the, the argument around that is that the sugary beverages aren't a food source, like say something like a milk or something like that and water, you know, being equivalent and it comes out of our tap and it's great and it's good for us. When you say diabetes, that's a major issue here. We've estimated that 12% of our population has diabetes. We're expected to see a 23% increase over the next decade. I saw that there's an increase in the insulin pump program. So the question around that is, is it because we need more? Is it because they're expensive or is it because the disease is progressing in people? Because a pump is used when it's more severe to disease. Well, what, what we did basically was we've extended the coverage for life. I mean, before it used to cap out at a certain age. So the, the increments there are around, uh, you know, the increased number of people who would have aged out of what the previous budget was, for, for want of a better term. Certainly what we're also doing behind the scenes is, is revamping the program internally so that the money we do spend is spent better. So we're looking at uh, different ways of buying pumps, different ways of buying the insulin pump as a service. So for example, uh, it might be like a lease. And if you had a problem, it would actually be the manufacturer who would deal with the pump and supply that and supplies for, for the year or whatever that the contract would work out to be. So we're working on several fronts there, but again, not everybody's suitable for an insulin pump. I think even with... Uh, data from the pediatric program, which is how it started out, uh, you were lucky to get 70% of new type, type 1 diabetics in that age group to be able to use the pump. There's just uh, some difficulties with that. So it's not right for everybody, but who gets it is a clinical decision. Uh, if you have insurance, we'll look at that first and we'll become the top up. And if you have no insurance, then we'll deal with the costs uh, so that you're not disadvantaged. Right. And, and so maybe you could just quickly from your physician lens of things, just explain what happens when somebody has type one diabetes and it's uncontrolled and why is this important that people have these pumps? Well, type one diabetes is, is kind of the diabetes that Banting and Best were looking at. It was a wasting disease, usually of young people and was, was often fatal. And it was the body's uh, inability uh, to handle sugar because you, you just didn't make the, the, the stuff that you needed, the insulin, which Banting and Best discovered. And the issues there is it, it produces damage in a variety of places through the body. 
it affects all the small blood vessels particularly. So you end up circulation difficulties in your fingers. The nerves that supply them don't often work properly. So you, you can't feel things. Uh, and you know, playing the accordion becomes hard if you're not impossible. Um, and, and it affects the vessels, the blood vessels inside your eyes uh, and your kidneys. So it's a cause of kidney failure. It's a cause of blindness. Uh, it's a cause of circulatory problems. And if you've got anything else wrong with you, that poor circulation really doesn't help at all. And, you know, uh, insulin is the drug for type one diabetes. That's Health Minister Dr. John Hagee sharing the new health initiatives in the provincial budget. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're talking with Health Minister Dr. John Hagee, who's sharing the new health initiatives in the provincial budget. Let's get back to the interview and learn more. One of the ways that we can look at improving our chances of, of not seeing that 23% come to realization is starting young with people and making sure that kids are eating healthy. You guys are going to be funding the Kids Eat Smart program. How does that work? Who will benefit from that program? Because that was a significant part of the health budget. Yeah, I mean, Kids Eat Smart is, is, is a program that started many years ago and, and, and really was a, a series of breakfast programs that started in, in schools, often with local volunteers. My, my late wife was involved in the one in Lakewood, in, in, uh, in Glenwood. Uh, and then the Kids Eat Smart Foundation kind of took it all on on a more provincial basis. And essentially, it offers healthy snacks in the morning for, for kids who are disadvantaged. Uh, that may be the best start they get to their day. It's a non-discriminating approach. Everybody's entitled to it. There's no questions asked. You, you, you go. Uh, and fresh stuff and, and healthy eating, there's a little bit of a premium that you have to pay for that until we do the other thing, which is also referenced in other parts of the budget, which is to get our own food security and sustainability uh, going within the province to get back to where we used to be when we produced a lot of our own stuff locally. Yeah, that's a full circle. And I was just going to say that the health accord has identified that there are some food insecurity issues and the social determinants of health are such an important part of how we stay healthy. The, the food security around developing our own sources of food and, and, and fostering programs like that. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, the irony of it is everybody knows how good the soil is in PEI, but if you go to the West coast of the Island here, there's 64,000 hectares of land, which is as good, if not better, uh, in terms of its growing potential. Uh, what we need is to invest in, in farmers and, and farming. Uh, in health, we, we've got a pilot scheme in two of the regional health authorities to work with local uh, farms, local suppliers, to provide fresh food, uh, fresh produce, for the, uh, the, the, the inpatients uh, in our hospitals in an attempt to use, I mean, we'd have to buy carrots and turnip and this kind of thing to feed inpatients. So why not buy them locally? Yes, we may pay a little bit more, but that money goes back into the Newfoundland and Labrador economy. So it's, it's money that's an investment. Uh, and, you know, there is an, an increasing incidence in kind of, you know, field to, to table uh, uh, approach to food. Um, we reached a nadir of about 10% of our own food being made locally, as it were. Um, but we're on, the, we're on the rise. And I think, uh, you know, um, uh, fishery, forestry and agriculture has a target. 
which they look to be on track to making. And we've, we've seen some interest in a younger generation who want to, to farm and maybe in more sustainable ways. We talk about organic. There's one not far from, from Gander, Eastport Organic. Uh, and there are others who are interested in, in, uh, uh, in this. So uh, I think, again, that looks to local, it looks to quality. And we are an island after all. And we all know that the shelves in the local supermarket get a bit thin sometimes in March when you have the winds blowing across the Gulf and uh, the boats don't get in for a week. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And you know, technology is changing and I know that there's some projects that have been done recently for the North that allow them to grow fresh food through hydroponics. And there's lots of opportunities for us to be creative when it comes to creating our own food. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about cigarettes and tobaccos and the tax that's going up on that. Why, why is that relevant? And you know, what is the cost of smoking to our healthcare system? Well, the cost of smoking to the healthcare system is, is one of those figures where it's large and everybody has a slightly different view of what the true figure is, you know, if it's X billion versus Y. Um, the fact is that price point is significant in modifying behavior, or at least stimulating people to, to give up, because we do have programs. It's not like you have to give up cold turkey. We have the Smokers Helpline, we have ACT, we have a variety of organizations and programs that will help you with smoking cessation, uh, be it uh, nicotine, be it patches or gum or, or whatever, uh, or, or even you know counseling. Um, a price is a trigger for people to use that. Um, the view we took, I think, this time around was essentially that uh, we will put the tax up to the maximum that we can. There is a challenge because once you go too far, there is an underground market. There is a contraband market. There is kind of the bootleg approach. And in Labrador, on the Labrador border with Quebec, we have a zone there where we don't elevate the prices the same because people can literally drive 10 minutes down the road into Quebec and get a packet of cigarettes way, way cheaper. So we don't want to disadvantage the local businesses any more than they have to be. But on the other hand, it is a public health issue. It does work. Uh, and this is the approach we adopted with the uh, tax on a cigarette and fine cut tobacco. That's interesting. Well, you have a new sort of adversary that kind of snuck in. You were saying that you've been quite successful with different populations when it comes to reducing smoking, but vaping is now here. You guys are doing programs around uh, vaping cessation as well. Like, why is that a concern? People may not actually know it's bad for us. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a gateway to nicotine. What, what's happened is vaping is out there. We have taken some steps towards regulating it through legislation and uh, flavored vapes, for example. The issue around the cessation piece or, or education piece we've done in partnership with ACT and we've done that really aimed at youth. There's a significant proportion of youth, 12 to 15, who have tried vaping. And it's really quite sneaky. There's a hideous amount of nicotine in some of these vapes. Mm -hmm. There really is. There's enough in one of these ampules of the high concentrate nicotine. Uh, it's equivalent to three packs of cigarettes. So that is a problem because no matter what people might say, nicotine is probably the most addictive substance people in, are exposed to in, in, in common daily experience. And I, I would even go so far as to, to count that in the same group as cocaine and heroin. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Yeah. And that's a, that's definitely a big issue. And like you said, it's a gateway. People get addicted to it. And if there's not a vape around, then maybe they reach for uh, a cigarette and then that starts that habit right there. Definitely something that we have shown time and time again, that is not good for us, but there's other things that we can do that are good to prevent some of the health issues. And one of the big things that I see as a major priority in the budget is addressing mental health. We have a new mental health and addiction center in St. John's, and you're going to be upgrading the one in Labrador. What's the focus for mental health in the budget? The focus for mental health in the budget is really around the community. The, the Towards Recovery Plan and its 54 whatever recommendations uh, is, is basically designed to try and bring mental health supports as near to the home as possible. And we've got what we call a step care approach. So there's five steps on the staircase. And step zero is actually mental wellness. And so step one to some extent. So we have an award-winning suite of online tools through bridgethegap.ca. And we used to have it as an app, but we found it was just a little bit too cumbersome. So we, we moved online for the modules and some of those can be downloaded and used as apps, but there's stress relaxation techniques, there's uh, wellness, uh, mindfulness, these kind of things, which are really very useful for people who want to, to stay mentally healthy and relaxed. Beyond that, we've moved into the realm of a clinic system we call Doorways, and it's, it's, a, it's an evocative title because it is the doorway. It's a single point of entry for people if they need it. We found that a lot of people who are, uh, you know, just still feeling uncomfortable after some of the online stuff they've been looking at, um, uh, you know, they just need to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. So you can drop in there, uh, no appointment necessary, and you get up to an hour of counseling with a, a, a trained professional. We found that for every 100 people who go to doorways, 50 to 55 of them find that single session is all they need. Mm. It reassures them, they go away, and if in three or four months' time they feel bad again, they go back and have another session. Uh, and, and it's worked like a dream. Of the others, then the counsellor there can say, well, you need something else, and here's the something else. We'll make some arrangements for you to do it. Because really the number of people and the challenge I had when we came into office was everyone was waiting to see a psychiatrist because they had a mental health issue. But in actual fact, 80% of those people didn't need to see a psychiatrist. They needed counseling of some sort. They needed addiction support of some sort. We've moved mental health uh, out into the community like that. We've done the same with addictions services. We have hubs and spokes where we have a center of expertise in town. and We have regional hubs scattered around. So there's a there's a hub in Gander, there's one in Grand Falls. There's a spoke clinic going to be in Gambo uh, in my own district where it provides services locally and that enables people to uh, to not have to spend a lot of time traveling it provides it closer to home um, we've got the mobile crisis response teams which have done so well in st john's with the rnc and chief boland really drove that from the time he was assistant chief we've partnered with the rcmp now so it's not just in rnc jurisdictions because it was originally town and then cornerbrook and then lab west now we've partnered with the RCMP, so there's a, a slightly different format in Gander uh, and Grand Falls is coming, and I think there'll be about nine centres by the end of this fall. So lots of little things there. Everyone's waiting for the new adult mental health facility. They think that's the end of it. It isn't. That's just a final uh, sort of 
keystone, a jewel in the crown, if you like. But by the time that's built, we will have worked our way through all the other steps. We still have some challenges with some of the psychology pieces and this kind of stuff, but we're working on that and we're in a, a way better place than we used to be. COVID has certainly slowed us down, but we're still, we're still moving. That's Health Minister Dr. John Hagee sharing the new health initiatives in the provincial budget. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're talking with Health Minister Dr. John Hagee, who's sharing the new health initiatives in the provincial budget. Let's get back to the interview and learn more. Another thing when you say COVID comes to mind is 811. You're also funding uh, mental health help for the 811 line, which I think a lot more people are aware of what it, they could avail of through there now based on the pandemic. What's going to be happening with that? Well, 811, I think, was a, was a service that evolved out of Healthline. It became... It started out life as a way of providing out-of-hours uh, advice to reduce emergency room visits. And certainly it has been very good at that. I think, uh, you know, again, if you take 100 callers who say their intent was to go to emergency, 70 of them will, will do something else on the advice of Healthline. We've added a nurse practitioner for at least 12, if not 14 hours a day. That hasn't been as well advertised, and I, I think we need to work harder to get that out there, particularly at the moment with some of the primary care concerns. But routine, episodic kind of issues can be dealt with quite well in that setting, and nurse practitioners are more than capable of dealing with this kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. it's great if you need a prescription refill. It, it's a good place to get uh, advice and, and some simple diagnostics, bearing in mind the limits of the technology, although they can use... Uh, you know, Skype and Zoom, the mental health piece as well. They always had a role in uh, originally just calling back people who had presented in emergency rooms with mental health issues, particularly the Waterford, and who left without being seen because some mm -hmm. people, when they're agitated, you know, don't have that ability to sit and, and wait. Uh, and so we're kind of building on that too. Uh, and I have to say it's been a great service. Uh, um, so uh, uh, that's where we are at the moment. What we can do next, I think, is a matter of imagination sometimes. Well, that's right. And one of the things that comes up is the, the nurse practitioners having quite a broad scope of practice, but also the virtual care and allowing access for people anywhere. And that was one of the aspects that, that I thought was very interesting was sort of the adoption of, of the virtual aspect. Does that go hand in hand with the infrastructure development around expanding Internet connectivity? Uh, the, the two are, are, are key. I mean, one of our challenges is if you if you talk to you know the internet providers, they'll say, oh, 95, 98% of Newfoundland and Labrador has internet access. But if you look at 5010, which is 50 gigabyte download, 10 up, probably only about 52% of the population have that reliably. That's what you need for uh, really as a standard. So the two go hand in hand and certainly... Um, uh, the, uh, the industry energy and technology area with Minister Andrew Parsons has been working on that, as has his predecessors, for sure. I think virtual care was really given a real kick in the pants to get going with COVID because of the issue of contact and this kind of thing. I think, uh, you know, the bugs need to be worked out of it. It's not perfect the way it is. Uh, I'm now hearing some concerns from patients and from specialists about, you know, uh, the old-fashioned face-to-face consult needs to be valued as well. So mm -hmm. we have to work on that. Uh, and I know there have been challenges. And I think as the the pandemic winds down a little bit more and our vaccine numbers go go up, I would uh, 
expect, you know, the traditional way of primary care and family doctor's offices and nurse practitioner's offices opening up, that should become, you know, a, a routine and normal activity. But certainly virtual care has got a boost here, and I'd like to ride that a little bit. I think there's a lot more we can do with it. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, again, I think there are various categories within virtual care that, that, uh, that need to be recognized. I think the phone is one thing, uh, but I think this kind of technology, because we're recording through Zoom, I think this has uh, significant merit and we need to look at how we can help that move along. And part of that for that 48% is, is the infrastructure piece. Uh, and that's outside our control directly, but certainly there is federal money uh, which we can leverage with municipalities. If they come up with a need and go to the internet service provider, then there are options through federal funding for kind of microservice areas and this kind of thing. So uh, it's, it's a whole of community effort. It's not just the provincial government that has a role in internet. I think the municipal uh, governments have a lot more sway and a lot more influence than they think they did. Before we go, just tell me about the Health Accord and what you guys hope will be achieved with this project. Well, I mean, this is a, an engagement exercise, an engagement project by uh, Dr. Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis to really see uh, a coordinated approach to, to healthcare. It actually goes right back to the things we started about at the beginning because it talks or will talk very much about the social determinants of health. They've done a series of rounds of consultation. I think one was kind of a scoping exercise. Uh, what should we talk about? And what should be in? They did that. They then moved on to healthcare delivery, which they're in the process of kind of cluing up about, you know, what primary care should look like, what uh, regional facilities should be there, how you deliver healthcare to the sick. Uh, and now, my understanding is they plan on going out in the fall to look at the big picture of the things you reference about social determinants of health. So it'll be a discussion about housing, housing security, affordable housing, poverty reduction, uh, and uh, you know food security, all those kind of things. Because at the end of the day, the, the truism is that if you look at the health status of an individual, there's multiple years of reports that shows that 75 or 80% of that comes from things other than doctors and nurses and hospitals. That's it right. comes from income at birth. It comes from diet. It comes from all those things that we, we grew up with and never realized, maybe took for granted or maybe missed. Uh, and uh, that's what determines your, uh, your, your ultimate health over life. And that's what they want to look at to kind of, my understanding from talking to uh, to them is this will be their their last big consultation piece. Then there'll be a bit of further engagement to make sure they heard what they thought they heard, and then um, we're expecting a report by the end of the year. Excellent. Yeah, there's very very prevalent seen and unseen barriers that keep us from having good health. Before we close up, is there any last words you'd like to give to the population? We're coming out of the out of the pandemic. We're all getting vaccinated, but what should we think about with health going forward? Well done. I mean, we provided the advice and the guidelines, but you guys listened and, and it worked. And you only have to look at other jurisdictions to see how well it worked. We played to our strengths and we did very well indeed. The mask was key. And I think you're right, you know, flu and this kind of thing. We haven't seen a flu season for three years. 
we missed two completely. We haven't seen the necessity of closing down frequently to visitors for Norwalk or, or, or viruses like that. We've had the odd one or two, but washing your hands, just what your mum used to tell you before you sat down for a meal, you'll wash your hands before you eat at the table. Simple things like that. And then we got the vaccine, which is a true game changer. Mm-hmm. And I think the only other thing I'd say about the vaccine is we're doing well overall. There are some groups, younger people, I think, uh, need a bit of encouragement to go. Uh, and I think it's important they do because you're seeing the the effects of not going elsewhere. So the, they're now describing the, the third wave of COVID as uh, a wave of the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. It's not affecting the likes of those who've had double shots. And we haven't seen it go through seniors' homes in the way it used to. And even if they do have it, they don't succumb to it. They, they, they are not as sick. So we're nearly there, but well done. There's a little bit more to do yet, and we'll, uh, uh, we'll be out of the woods for a bit. That's great. Yeah. For anybody who wants to have questions answered from experts on vaccine hesitancy, we did do an episode on that. It was very enlightening and answered a lot of questions. People, Mr. Hagee, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for making the time throughout the pandemic to get us all the information we need. And it's exciting to see the initiatives you have going forward. So thanks for being here. No, thanks for your interest, Mike. It's been a good chat. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you to Premier Fury and Minister Hagee for joining me today. They say the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's nice to see our leadership taking several steps to move us not only down the road faster, but in the right direction. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador will be sharing more information on these initiatives and how they'll be implemented and when they'll take effect in the coming months, so stay tuned for that. Just a reminder that this episode, along with all of our other episodes, are available on VOCM.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, so be sure to check them out there if you ever miss a show. Well, that's our episode this week. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.